Well, folks, we are going to be continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke this morning. If you've been following the series or perhaps uh, reading along, you will have um, seen that we've already met quite a few uh, characters, and we're only just through the first two chapters. And today, as you can see from the screen, we're going to be taking a little bit of time to look at John the Baptist. We're going to be picking up the the reading in Luke chapter 3 at verse 7 through to verse 18. So if you have your Bibles with you or your Bible apps, I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. So if you want to read along in the version that I'm using, do turn to that. If you are familiar with the Gospels, you, you will know that John the Baptist is a really, really significant figure in all four Gospels. All four Gospels introduce Jesus through John the Baptist. John the Baptist's ministry and his preaching is the gateway, is the pathway to Jesus. But quite interestingly, when we go to the Gospel of Luke, we, we find throughout Luke's Gospel actually some material that is unique to Luke that we don't find in any of the other Gospels. And it is Luke who provides for us the content of John the Baptist preaching. We, we get a little bit of a, a snapshot, a, a synthesis of John's message because of the gospel of Luke. So we're going to pick up our reading at verse 7 in chapter 3 of the gospel of Luke. John said to the crowds, this is John the Baptist coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, literally sons of snakes, you don't get the sense that John would do well in local church ministry, do you? I've given you a really, really nice warm welcome this morning. If it was John the Baptist, you'd be coming into church with um, these kind of superlatives being sprung at you. Maybe I should give that a go next week, see how it goes. What do you think? No. Sons of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked an understandable question. I think you would agree. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Let's just hit the pause button in the reading there for a moment or two. And what Luke provides for us in in his gospel is an outline of the key themes of John the Baptist's preaching. And we can see from that short passage that the key themes are repentance, a, a turning around of heart and mind from one thing to the other. And we'll take a little bit more time to look at 
um, repentance next week, what it means and how we lean into it. But alongside that, John focuses on forgiveness, the forgiveness that comes through repentance, and of course, a time of judgment. We might be able to summarize John's preaching and his emphasis in this particular way. In one sense, John could be said to be emphasizing the negative side of God's kingdom coming near. So we have thought about the great tidings of joy that were declared to the shepherds because the kingdom was coming near. But John balances that off by saying it's not going to be good news for everyone. With the note of promise that the, king, that the kingdom coming near brings, there's also a risk of judgment for rejecting that promise. Now, judgment isn't a particularly popular theme. It's not necessarily one that you'd love to do a, a, a topical sermon series on. We shy away from it, and in terms of our modern ears, it, it, it sounds judgmental. It, it, it sounds like it's running, running against the spirit of the age, and we don't necessarily like to think of God as being a judge. God is one who, who comes to judge the living and the dead, as the scriptures say. But I think that we need to look at it through the lens that judgment itself and God's good judgment is actually a manifestation of God's goodness. The judgment of God is God saying he will not allow evil to prosper forever and ever. He will not allow evil to go unchecked. He makes a determination in himself to call an end to it, to call an end to evil and its destructive effects. And I think that that is, is something for us to, to bear in mind when perhaps we're, we're trying to witness to the goodness of, of God in our own context, in our own spaces and places. This is not a popular message that John had to bring, but it was in and of itself pre-warning of judgment to come, <laughs> allowing somebody to know that it was coming to meet you. Well, that in a sense, if it's responded to in a good way, is good news. If I was hurtling down um, a one-way street the wrong way, I would want somebody to bring that to my attention so I could turn around, readjust, and get myself on the right track. Now, when we look into the Gospels, John is ministering and speaking into a particular community, a particular nation, and you've been reading along the, with the Tom Wright commentary, you'll know that he's been drawing that out for us. But John's declaration made it clear that judgment was approaching. Key decisions needed to be made. And the best way to respond John insists to this approaching judgment is to repent. <laughs> repent. Repentance and the forgiveness that, that follows. We see that God always responds to repentant people with kindness, with grace. He takes, he takes our repentance and he enables us to make a way back to God, back to himself. That has been an age-old truth. It is not just something that the New Testament attests to. It's as old as our entire scriptures itself. 
But what interests me when I've been sitting um, and reading through and, and studying John's message and his preaching is that John spells out repentance for us, not necessarily in terms that we would expect. So he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't spell out repentance in terms of a religious ritual. The classics say 100 Hail Marys and cross yourself three times and you're good to go. <laughs> I know that's a little bit of a caricature, but when we're talking about repentance, we perhaps expect something that sounds religious in order to demonstrate repentance. Or, or perhaps some kind of mental or emotional acknowledgement that you feel sorry. Tears, grief, an inward pain. All those things, I guess, are part of repentance, but they don't really make an appearance with John and his preaching. He spells out repentance in really, really worldly, practical terms. So, for example, he says, if a repentant person sees someone who is hungry or in need of clothing, the call is to feed and to clothe that person. That is, according to John, one of the fruits of repentance. A repentant person who collects taxes must do so without excess surcharges, not to take more than what is legally required. A repentant person who is a soldier, well, they must not intimidate, use violence, or extort money, but be content, he says, with one's own wage. I'm interested in this, and I think that it has lots of potential application for our own lives. John's repentance expresses itself neither in separation from the world, nor in selfish pursuit often. So in his audience, he's preaching to a range of people, some tax collectors, some who are soldiers. John doesn't command these people to give up their jobs. He, he doesn't tell them to retreat to a monastery. Rather, he says, don't take financial or physical advantage of those under your authority or those who are less weak than you. You mightn't be a soldier or a tax collector, but all of us are capable, actually, of taking advantage of those who are weaker than us, who are under our authority, whether that's in the home in the neighborhood, in the place of work. John will say that repentance exhorts people to be fair with others and meet basic needs with fundamental aid. If you want to know how to repent, then you don't become closed-handed and hard-hearted to those in need. This is what God desires of those who know he is present and coming. So if you want to turn back toward God, but perhaps you don't necessarily feel a mental or emotional pull, you can demonstrate repentance and a penitent heart practically in the way you deal with others. When we think through what our response might be to John's message. Imagine John was our visiting preacher. <laughs> we probably would have him here once every five years, wouldn't we? And we'd let people know in advance and the church wouldn't be 
particularly full if John the Baptist was coming to, to preach to us, but he would be worth listening to because he's not afraid to tell the truth, even an inconvenient or uncomfortable truth. But if John were to preach to us this morning, what would our questions be? What should we do, John? We're not tax collectors or soldiers, but we are a range of different things, mums and dads, husbands and wives, neighbors on our streets, workers in the world. What would John tell us to do if he was commanding us to repent? Would we say, I must attend church more regularly? I must pray more fervently? I must, must read the Bible more diligently? Or perhaps I'll put more money in the offering plate. That'll do the trick. <laughs> They're all good things to do. Don't get me wrong. But if our acts of repentance leave the larger part of our lives, our eating, sleeping, walking around, and working lives untouched, if they leave our business affairs unaddressed, if it doesn't really change how we treat people under our authority or those in vulnerable positions, if it doesn't begin to at least challenge how we use or misuse our money, then repentance hasn't really done its full work. John would say, I think, that it needs to flow into every nook and cranny of our lives. It needs to flood our lives in every single way possible. So we have in Luke's gospel material that is unique. He gives us a little bit of a snapshot into the type of things John preached about. But there's also clear parallels with the other gospels. In relation to John the Baptist, the promise of the mightier one to come appears in the other three gospels. So we're going to pick up our reading again at verse 15. Again, we're in Luke chapter 3. So the people have been flocking to, to hear John preach. And as a result of the, of the power and the authority of his preaching and his ministry, we're told that the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah, the Savior, the one sent from God. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. We hear clear parallels and echoes in all the other gospels. When John is asked if, if he is the one sent by God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, he is quick to say, no, it, it's not me. There's somebody greater, more powerful, more important, stronger who is on his way. And as I have been reflecting upon this text, as I've been reading a little bit about John in preparation for the message today, the thing that has stood out for me, the thing that has challenged me the most it's John's readiness 
and willingness to submit to Jesus' superiority, to Jesus' preeminence. Quite simply, Jesus is the most important person in John's life. He has a very, very clear idea of his role, of his importance in relation to the mightier, the more powerful one to come. Now, we must not downplay the significance of John, of his life and his ministry in preparing the way for Jesus. As we have said, all the other gospels, they they present John as the gateway to Jesus. He has an honored place in our story. This is what Jesus had to say about John. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. That is high praise. Could you imagine Jesus saying that about you? (laughs) You'd feel pretty great. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than Stephen. Doesn't sound right, does it? (laughs) Or Ruth. (laughs) Or Sue. Or John. Well, I was using you as an example, John. That's not a good example because I'm getting the names mixed up. But that's what Jesus had to say about John the Baptist. We can't downplay his significance. He is vitally important. And yet all four Gospels present John as a willing and humble servant of Jesus, whose clear purpose is to attest to Jesus the mightier one to come. So John is asked if he was the Messiah, and we read there that this was John's reply. There is one who is more powerful than I who will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. What an answer. John's humility and identity in comparison to Jesus come out clearly. John is not worthy to untie a sandal from Jesus' feet. Now, of course, most people in the first century went barefoot or perhaps wearing sandals. And one duty of a slave was to untie the sandals from the master's feet after a day out traipsing around the the town. It's a little bit of a degrading job. Actually, within the, the confines of the Jewish religion, taking the sandals off a master's feet was such a degrading act that Hebrew slaves were not permitted to do it. You weren't allowed to degrade people to that extent. So John is kind of using this imagery to say that he is so inferior to Jesus that he's not worthy to perform even the most menial task for his master. I've been struck by this. I love John's response, his humility, his submission, his preoccupation with the greatness and the glory of Jesus, the one to come. I've been thinking about that response. If somebody had asked me, not that they ever would, but, Stephen, are you the one who is to come? Are you the Messiah? I'm not the Messiah. I'm just a naughty, naughty boy. (laughs) I could imagine I would reply with a Northern Irishism. Me? Catch yourself on. Do you know that expression? Catch yourself on. Or wise up. My wife hates it when I tell her to wise up, don't you? If she says something that I, that I find hilarious or preposterous, wise up. 
Sometimes I do it on purpose. I'm sorry, darling. <laughs> but I would say, if, you, if somebody said to me, are you the Messiah, Stephen? I'd say, wise up, catch yourself on. There's one greater, more powerful <laughs> to come. Thank goodness. And I think that this is a great attitude that John offers us, a great mindset for us to get ourselves into in relation to Jesus. There's one who is mightier, more important than any one of us. He is great, and it's our job to serve him and his purposes. Now, there's much to admire, I think, about John, and we read on into the Gospels, and we see, for example, he, he is a man who is impartial. He's not swayed by important people. So, for example, we see him speaking truth to power, powerful men in his particular context, and it eventually loses his life. John is not willing to dilute his words in relation to his audience, and I think there's something really admirable about that. He is fearless in speaking truth to power. He is courageous in the face of danger. He is completely impartial. But I think that is John's willingness to completely submit his life for Jesus' sake and his glory that is the true mark of his greatness. <laughs> I think that's why he takes the place that he does in all of our gospels. And it's why I think that John is for us a little bit like Mary. If you think back a number of weeks ago, we were thinking about how Mary, the mother of Jesus, acts as a model disciple. I am the Lord's servant. Be it unto me according to your word. We see in Mary's life and response to the gospel a model for us to follow. And I think that in our gospels, John is offered to us as a model disciple as well. His example is one. In our time and place, we are called to try and emulate. I'm going to invite the band to come back to lead us in our closing song, but as we have thought about the life of John the Baptist, and again, as we try to prepare our hearts to respond to God's word. <laughs> preaching or listening to preaching isn't just something we do with our, our ears. Our response isn't just audible. John would say it has to be worked out. As you think about John the Baptist, his preaching, his life, his example, as we reflect on the passage today, what does it make you want to pray? To pray for yourself, to pray for those around you. Perhaps there is something about John that you would want to emulate, his fearlessness, his impartiality. Perhaps you're aware that sometimes you're, you're prone to change things up in relation to who you're talking to. Perhaps quite simply, it is finding, finding your place at the feet of Jesus, focusing on him as the, the primary object of your worship and of your service, no matter what, 
you do. What might living this passage out involve for you? What does it look like to be repentant, not just in your religious life, but in the totality of your life? Are there things in our lives that need cleaned up, that need the attention of Jesus? I just want to give you a few moments to to name those things before the Savior. be alive to his command to make the proper response. And as we do that, perhaps I'll invite you, if you're able to, to stand with me. I'm going to pray together. If we could just go back to that last slide, if at all possible, Ian. Let's pray these words together. Almighty God, by whose guidance your servant John was wonderfully born and sent to prepare the way of your son, our Savior, lead us to repent according to his preaching and to follow his example, constantly to speak the truth, boldly to rebuke vice, and patiently to suffer for the truth's sake. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Amen.